Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Welcome to Skylines, a city metric podcast. I'm John. A city I've spent quite a lot of time in is the very fine city of Miami in Florida. I love Miami to bits, partly just familiarity, partly yeah, who, who wouldn't love it? It's a subtropical paradise, to be honest. But also, it's a very fine city to to drive around, like some wonderful architecture. It's just a really nice drive down down Ocean Drive and Collins Drive and so on. But we always end up going to the same two or three places. So on one of our more recent trips, we decided to to go and check out a different part of town because we normally wander around South Beach. Decided we'd go check out what's going on in North Beach. So we parked up, got out, and it was rubbish because all the stuff that had looked interesting from the car turns out to be quite a long way away from each other. It's not a good city for walking around. It's built on the scale designed for cars rather than the scale designed for people. I've been thinking about this because it kind of fits in with... Uh, a, a loose theory I have that the best cities, the most interesting cities, are walkable cities because you get a kind of density of incident. You can go, you, you can just find a nice little cafe and a nice little shop and a bar and something. They're all sort of bumping up against each other. If a city's designed around the car, it's harder to achieve that. You know, in Britain, we've we've kind of got a fairly mixed record on this. Some cities are very good for walking, some some rather less so. But but this is our topic for today, and this is what our our, our special guest is going to talk about. He's been sat there very patiently while I've taken. I'm going to be honest with you. I've taken a number of takes to get this far. So it's time to, to let him actually speak. Do you want to tell us who you are and why you're here? Hello, I'm uh, Steve Chambers. I'm policy and research coordinator at Living Streets, the charity for everyday walking. And you're here to talk about why walkability matters. Is that is walkability a word? First off, uh, yeah, I think so. Ex- if it isn't, it is now. We'll get it in the we'll get it in the OED soon enough. So first off, you know, obviously, I care a great deal about cities being walkable because I'm the kind of idiot who spends his spare time walking aimlessly, poking at things. But you know, why should this matter to to normal people? Okay, so. Cities that are walkable are more enjoyable to be in, to walk around, to discover. Um, they're also healthier cities. By encouraging walking, by people getting people out of cars, you're reducing air pollution. They're physically healthier places. People are walking more, in particular young people, children walking to school. Governments are realising that, realising that they're 
able to deal with a lot of the problems that we have at the moment, such as childhood obesity, by encouraging more children to walk to school. Obviously, there are sort of health benefits. There are, it seems, potentially sort of cultural benefits too. And that just, I mean, I mean, actually, that's a good question. Like, am I just making this up? The idea that like cities that are walkable are more interesting. Is there any actual research to back that up? Um, not only are they more interesting, they are um, better. Uh, economically, look where we are right now in the, in a basement in the city of London. All those banks in close proximity to each other, walkable to each other. The network effects of that proximity continues. Those banks still want to be located uh, within walking distance of each other. Mm. So that kind of walkability not only has these sort of health benefits and environmental benefits, but also has an economic benefit. Businesses want to locate in these places where employees can walk to work. That's very, I suppose that's kind of true in that like when the city of London finally sort of lost its monopoly on, on Britain's financial services industry, it's because another cluster popped up over in Canary Wharf where again, it's a very, it's, it's a single private estate, right? People can sort of quietly nip off for a job interview or go to a meeting or whatever it may be. But the, the other end, I suppose you've got like Silicon Valley where like Silicon Valley is not as far as I know built around kind of human scale in that way, is it? It's not. And what some of the tech companies have learned there is actually their employees don't want to be living in a car-oriented suburb. They want to be in San Francisco with its great walkability and access to services. And what we're seeing in London is the campuses out in Reading wanting to relocate, such as Google, um, into central London because they know the kinds of people who they want to attract as employees want to be in walkable cities. They don't want to be in a suburban campus. I've actually just finished uh, reading a book by Richard Florida, the urban theorist who founded City Lab over in the United States. His new book's called The New Urban Crisis and I was reading it to review it for the, for the New Statesman. There's a lot of stuff in that about what he calls the creative class and, and how you attract them to a city. And walkability does seem to be one of the things, just that it's very noticeable that the superstar cities he identifies, like London, New York, San Francisco, are all ones where you can sort of walk around rather than being reliant on the car the whole time. And it's not just important for the creative class. Parents tell us that living streets that they want to walk their children to school, but it's basic things like safe walking route not being available or the fact that there are just so many uh, cars around the school actually make it unsafe so improving walking sort of benefits everyone okay so let's talk about what what you need to do to make a city walkable because you know in in principle you can kind of walk everywhere right like it's, it's actually surprisingly rare certainly in europe maybe not so much in north america or the middle east or something it's surprisingly rare to come across a city that doesn't have pavements but that's not enough right sure so the quality of the walking route is important we know that our perceptions of how long a walking journey will take changes when the quality of the walking route is lower so people will actually think oh that journey to the shops to work to school will take me longer than it actually does and we've got an idea that most people will be quite happy to walk for about 20 minutes but if you perceive that you maybe have to cross a very busy road with a multi-stage crossing so you're sort of held in the middle uh, maybe the quality of the pavements isn't very grey isn't very wide all these things um, you'll actually perceive it as being longer and you won't walk and you'll get in the car so just being able uh, to walk it uh, just there being physically a, a pavement present isn't necessarily enough. And one other thing I'd say on this, unfortunately, we are 
planning and delivering cities where, in particular, on the outskirts of them, we have housing development without pavements. That's something that's happening. You're kidding. No, we are actually delivering that. And in some cases, okay, fine, uh, walkability isn't possible because these have been planned very badly and they're not near services. They're not even connecting up to the, to the nearest bus stop. So... Yes, there are places where you know we're not putting in pavements, which is which is pretty rubbish considering that's you know current planning and currently current delivery of housing. So you guys have talked about this concept of you know, the need to create a walking network. What does that actually look like? What does that involve? Okay, so this might include uh, significant projects like a pedestrianisation. So we see that in London, so Oxford Street. We've been campaigning to have that pedestrianised and um, it's in Sadiq Khan's manifesto and he is now delivering that as a, as a pedestrianised space. So it's creating those those spaces and linking them up. There's another proposal at the moment to change or reallocate space on the route from New Oxford Street to Old Street that we are supporting. And again, that's about creating a network, linking up bits of good walking infrastructure so you can complete the entire journey on foot. But, I mean, one of the qu- questions that's always got to me around the idea of pedestrianising Oxford Street is there's an awful lot of buses on Oxford Street. Okay. And, bu- and buses are, are also a pretty important part of London's transport network. How easy is it just to kind of pluck a major artery out of the network. Well, TfL deserves some praise here. They've been quite clever. And what they've actually been doing, they've already started, is reallocating where the routes go along Oxford Street. So they're either curtailing them. So, um, in fact, if you want to go back to the history of why we have so many overlapping buses on Oxford Street, it's quite uh, interesting. They were routes that went from one side of of London to the other. And then as London got more congested, they split the route in two, but created an overlapping section on Oxford Street. So we have a lot of overlapping routes. So TfL have been cutting those back. So, for example, they'll end at Tom Court Road, corner of Oxford Street, or somewhere else. And they're able to maintain the same fares for those journeys because of the hopper ticket. What they've also been doing... Sorry, the hopper ticket is the ticket whereby you can now switch buses and not pay a second fare as long as it's within a certain time limit. That's exactly right. So uh, they're maintaining the fares and they're maintaining the journey opportunities. And what they're also doing is sending buses off in a completely different direction. So they were previously going along the street, they're now going somewhere else. So by the time, and they did, uh, the last, the last cut was about 40% of routes on Oxford Street, they have another uh, change um, scheduled. But by the time they actually close off Oxford Street, there won't be that many buses left. And one of the misconceptions around Oxford Street is this idea that all of these buses that we're used to seeing there sort of clogging up the street are just going to be relocated one block away. And that simply isn't the case. They've been, they've been working quite well to make sure that they are, that they are nearby or, um, and that there's not too many of them on the adjacent streets. Cause that, that's, that's the thing that's always, that I've always questioned is there isn't really a sort of parallel route you can divert those buses to. I mean, there's kind of this Gooch Street, Mortimer Street, but that's a significant walk away in itself. And it's a much narrower road. You can't really just sort of pull these buses down there, can you? So, yeah. I mean, obviously, there's the increased capacity of Crossrail slash Elizabeth Line, uh, which is coming in as well. So there, there is uh, new transport capacity on Oxford Street itself. So when are we likely to... We'll get back to the, the talking about this more generally in a minute. Mm. But when are we likely to see this coming in? It is already scheduled to happen in 2018. I didn't realise the first stage. Oh, I'm quite excited about yes. that. Yes, we'll do a we'll do a podcast special. We'll go for a walk. 
So, so as we do sometimes, as sometimes happens with this podcast, we got bogged down in the minutiae of London life. What, what, what examples are there you can talk about from, from outside Britain's capital? Okay, so in England at the moment, we have new metro mayors, and we're very excited about them. We're very excited. We're very sad about Sue Jeffrey, but we're very excited about the other. As campaigners, we always like someone's uh, new door to knock on, and they their biggest power is transport. So in the run-up to uh, the elections, we saw some interesting commitments on walking. Uh, Andy Street promised to turbocharge walking in the West Midlands. Uh, Andy Burnham made some promises as well. One of the things we call for is to take walking seriously. And the way we think that happens is when someone in a very senior role is appointed with a responsibility for walking. And that happened in Greater Manchester with Chris Boardman, who's most famous as a cyclist, but he's also a keen walker. Uh, and that happened in the first 100 days of Andy Burnham being elected. We haven't seen that with any any other cities. So we hope to see those mayors catching up. Now, when I was talking about some cities, interesting cities tending to be walking cities, one of the examples I was thinking of actually was, was Birmingham and the West Midlands, where at risk of offending the people of that great metropolis, I do kind of feel that once you get out of the centre of Birmingham to the bit that isn't designed for, that is much more designed around cars. It becomes a pretty boring place to wander around. There's not that much to kind of bump into, uh, in a way that's not, not, for example, true of London or even Manchester to a certain extent. And it does just feel like Birmingham feels like a great example of why you shouldn't design the city around the car. Yes, so we have seen some improvements in central Birmingham, but there is that feeling that you, and, and I've wandered around Birmingham myself and actually found it quite enjoyable, but you do sort of wander off a bit and you're like, oh, I appear to be on the slip road of a, of a motorway. I'm yeah. quite sure how that happened. It's, it's still quite clearly delineated when you're in the kind of nicely redeveloped city centre and then you get out and you know you've, you've left the city centre quite easily. This is why these new metro mayors are quite good. They do have a remit over a whole region. So we would hope to see some of the work that they're doing not just focused on the city centre. And the way the governance of those mayors has been set up, they are scrutinised by the borough leaders and there's quite there's quite a lot of power actually in the boroughs themselves so hopefully we'll see those kinds of improvements happening not just in the in the city center and not just in the in the city proper but in the outer boroughs of those regions ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Actually, another part of the West Midlands that's been doing very interesting things on walking is, uh, if you've, you spent much time in Coventry recently? I can't say that I have. I, I went to Coventry for a series of articles I was writing late last year. And I was genuinely pleasantly surprised at quite how nice Coventry is becoming. Because you, you do, you, it, you know, it, very famously, it's a city that once, it was one of the great cities of medieval England. It had like this sort of very densely packed city centre and an old cathedral and so on. And the story's always been that it got ruined by the, by the Luftwaffe. But that's not actually true. It was ruined by the council in the thirties that deliberately knocked down much of the old city centre to build great big roads for it. And that's the story in a lot of cities. It's those mistakes of the mm. post-war period that we now um, have the opportunity to correct. And they, and you know, to their to their credit, they're doing that in Coventry. One of the the, the routes they've genuinely put a lot of effort into improving is the walking route from the from the station on the outskirts of the city centre into into the central business district. They've put a lot of time and effort into landscaping this pedestrianized route greenery and you pass bars and restaurants and so on so that your first impression coming into the place is oh this is much nicer than i was expecting and you know and they've had to take up like you know a four-lane highway to do this other things to make a city better for walking are actually you know pretty basic the nuts and bolts of it it is about reallocating space from the car to walking to cycling having um infrastructure for cycling often improves the experience for walking uh, the investment makes you know both better we also uh, find that outside london uh, parking is permitted on the pavements is a a situation where often walking routes are obstructed and that's another thing that local authorities can get right very easily by uh, restricting obstructions on the pavement. I have a horrible feeling we're aggressively agreeing with each other, which doesn't make for a very mm. interesting podcast. So I'm going to play devil's advocate now and say, surely if we take space away from roads, we're going to end up with uh, a lot more congestion. People are not going to, you know, people are always going to need to use their cars for some things. So aren't we just going to mean that they're going to be spending longer sat in traffic jams or there's going to be less space for buses too? I mean, we need roads, right? What's wrong with roads? We absolutely do need roads. Uh, oh, but that's a boring answer. <laughs> but what we need to, um, to recognise is that the way we are using the streets is changing and they, space needs to be reallocated. And on the subject of congestion, for every journey that you mode shift from being in a car to being in a cycle walking then you are reducing that congestion just because it's purely a geometric thing right you're using less space if you're it's simply using less space this is something i've always found quite interesting about the some of the more utopian ideas coming out of of uh, silicon valley at the moment this idea that autonomous vehicles will mean we don't need the mass transit anymore is complete nonsense because one of the main advantages of mass transit is it's a very efficient use of space compared to everyone having their own metal box yeah. every now and then i'll read an article um with uh, some tech person explaining how autonomous vehicles will allow someone to be picked up and then another person will sort of work out a route and they've basically mm. reinvented the bus yes um, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Silicon Valley is very, very slowly reinventing buses, isn't it? Anyway. But um, the danger with autonomous vehicles is it would well, someone like me who walks whenever possible, doesn't have a driving license, will will we'll start to get in a you know a single occupancy. Uh, vehicle. A lot of the benefits that they talk about with autonomous vehicles, about how it will be this amazingly efficient use of the space because they'll all be connected to each other. Well, to get those benefits, every vehicle has to be an autonomous vehicle. And I think that's a long way off. And do you want to be the government that says to people, oh, well, all of you guys who still got these legacy vehicles, we're not going to allow them from next year. I'm sorry. So I think the idea of us getting to this stage where they're, they're all autonomous vehicles and we're getting these benefits is a long way off. We, we did a podcast on this some time ago with Guardian's Alex Hearn uh, talking about how there are actually different levels to autonomous vehicles and, and, and complete autonomy where there's no human involvement whatsoever is, is what's known as level five, but we're much more likely to see stuff that's basically advanced cruise control much sooner than that. The other thing um, that gets brought up with this is the idea, oh, there'll be electric vehicles and they'll be emission-free. And that simply isn't correct. Electric vehicles produce pollution when they are produced, the electricity that is used to drive them, and also their braking systems emit PM pollution, air pollution. So often we'll be told, oh, don't worry about air pollution. Autonomous and electric vehicles are coming, and that will fix it all. And that simply isn't the case. Well, so aside from the pollution, getting back to the congestion point, they're still taking up space. We're st- there is still an argument that actually there are better ways to use scarce space in the city than giving everyone space for their own little metal box to travel around in. Yeah, and potentially encouraging more people to take trips in vehicles. So we need to be encouraging people to walk and cycle where that's possible and use public transport. So I'm going to shift gears a bit now and ask you, what's, you, you say you're a pedestrian yourself. What's your favourite walk in London? Hmm. I guess I could say the river. Just every now and then I'll walk along the, the river on a Sunday and fall in love with London again, which is always a nice feeling. I don't know. I like the walk that I will do to work, even though it's down a pretty horrible congested Holloway Road. I never cease to be bored of it. Well, actually, one thing I do is I use Google Maps to uh, give me directions somewhere and I place my headphones on, listen to some music, and then sort of stroll off. And every now and then it'll give me a voice cue uh, to go back onto, on, onto the path of, of where I'm ultimately going. But I'll use that as a, as a way to sort of wander around the city, sort of slightly aimlessly, but vaguely with a purpose. That's interesting, because something I, 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 as I've said many times on this thing, I spend a lot of time aimlessly walking around London to the point where it's becoming increasingly difficult to find places I don't feel like I've been a hundred times. And like I, I, I'm always looking for new ways of, of just getting lost, basically. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I need to start doing silly things like start finding a street that begins with A and one that ends with Z, and just like picking two random points and getting Google Maps to direct me between them. Something like that. serendipity. So how do you get more? Po- I mean, like I'm weird in terms of normal people. Like, how do you get them to change the behaviour and show more enthusiasm for walking as opposed to getting on a bus for free stops or whatever it may be? So we've talked a lot about sort of built environment interventions, how to make uh, the city more walkable. But actually, um, a lot of the work that uh, Living Streets does is about behaviour change. And we work a lot with schools to encourage children to walk to school. The government has a target of seeing 55% of primary school children walking to school. And what we find is that when we go into schools uh, with uh, children and encourage them to walk, we see an increase of walking rates of around 23%. So starting early, getting in when children are young, is a way to encourage walking. So, I mean, that's not 
doing anything other than saying, hey, guys, why don't you walk, basically? So the way it works is we use a a badge uh, scheme where the children uh, log on um, every day how they they walk to school. And if they, by the end of the week, are... um, Walking, normally walking to school, they'll win a badge. And the badges really incentivize them. Uh, they also get to design design the badges themselves, have a competition, and it's incredibly effective. And it's very cheap as well. This is what's known as gamification. If you kind of make, if you introduce a slight competitive element to these things, you can kind of get people to do things more easily. It is exactly that, yes. Yeah. What other kind of, as we say, we've got these new metro mayors, like in some parts of the country at least there is now a focus in local government on the idea of place which i think has been missing for decades now what are the kind of things you want policymakers to do what do you want these new metro mayors to be changing one thing is thinking about what the function of streets is so we've kind of got this idea oh it's just something to ferry traffic from one place to another and the reality is often these are indeed places there are high streets the main uh, purpose of some streets will be to shop, you know, an econ- a place for um, the, the economy to happen. And in those cases, then maybe there shouldn't be traffic there, or there should be less traffic there, or the priority should be for walking. So what we'd like to see is more thinking about literally what is the purpose of of a street, each street? Is it actually a place? And having policy that reflects that. I mean, there's often a lot of whinging from uh, from the car lobby in London, it tends to be the black cab drivers who object most vehemently to any proposals to... Although I do remember there was one of the biggest objections to the building of the, the cycle superhighway along the embankment uh, came from a guy who was chief executive. I can't remember which bloody company he was, but someone did plot out his route between the airport and his office and it went exactly down the embankment. And it's like, well, that might possibly be one of the reasons for his objection. It's just going <laughs> to, anyway. I think there were some politicians in uh, Westminster who had similar concerns yes, about this like, particular cycle route. It's yeah. just so blindingly obvious when, yeah. But, 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 you know, there are always, there's always this kind of pushback. How do you win people over to the idea that actually, cities where it's easier to to cycle or indeed walk is 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 better uh, better for everyone okay so i can refer you to a uh, book on this by uh, jeanette sadiq khan i don't know if you've uh, read it. it's called street fight i haven't okay so you have to you have to use data you and you have to uh, prove your point you have to uh, so an example there was the shops in new york saying oh my god if this is if we're pedestrianized here we're going to have our takings down our footfall down so they went in with counters before and after and counted the number of people going into the shops with the cabbies they uh, were told we're going to have to take terrible long routes out of our way this is going to impact on our our income they went in there with gps devices and proved to them that this actually wasn't happening so you have to demonstrate and also the interesting thing that was done there partly because of uh, some nuance of new york planning they could only do temporary schemes which actually are really great for proving that it works Mm. Uh, and also sort of you know sort of getting buy-in the other the other point about um this fear of reallocating spaces once you've encouraged as many journeys as possible out of the car, in particular to walking and cycling, you've freed up the space for those, you know, let's call them essential journeys that need to happen in, in these vehicles. So those sound like some very useful things we can do. Does taking the piss out of black cab drivers on the internet have any benefit? No, I don't think that's useful. Although I would say uh, over time, I think they've become more civil. So I think we've had a positive effect on them. 
I'm surprised and reassured to find that evidence can actually change people's minds because the impression I've been getting recently is that people just yeah, people get very dug into their their sort of ideological positions to the extent where like presenting evidence doesn't actually change anyone's mind. It just kind of shows that you're the enemy. I guess if you have a bit of evidence and it kind of backs up the story of what's happened, the you know what you what you've seen, uh, it can be convincing. I suppose it's the difference between like you know, you know evidence in the form of like statistics you can bandy around on the internet and evidence in terms of lived experience and like actually. If you, if you can see that, that a physical change has had a positive effect on the city, that's kind of a different category of evidence, isn't it? It is exactly that. It's linked up, isn't it? When you see sort of the, uh, evidence that's been drawn for different places, like, oh, that's somewhere else, or let, here's my caveat why I think this evidence doesn't apply to me. Whereas if you've got um, someone's experience, of, for example, the, the street outside being pedestrianised, um, and what happened that day, and then here's some data that sort of reflects it, I think that's more convincing. Well, that's a happy note to end on, that actually we can we can win this one. Normally these podcasts end with us being talking about how we're all doomed. So for once we're going to end with a smile on our faces. Great. There we go.